0: Hello, guys. I'm Mossin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mossin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, Alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands, and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So, if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, Check us out at IslamicFinanceGuru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on Mossin at IslamicFinanceGuru.com, and you can get Ibrahim on Ibrahim at IslamicFinanceGuru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank, a Sharia compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. They have helped over 70,000 customers be pension confident by helping them transfer their all pensions together into one simple online plan. They also have a great Sharia compliant pension option as well, which is why we personally really like them. And you can check out a review of their offering on the Shure side on our website.
1: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone and welcome We're going to be summarizing a few key news stories from the past two weeks And be discussing them amongst ourselves With me here today is co-founder of IFG, Ibrahim Khan I'm sure you guys have seen his face plenty of times And we've got our VC, VC professional, I don't know what your job title is
2: (laughs) Investment associate Investment associate, Mohammed Al-Talaib but that's changed now, isn't it? It has in a way. Well, if you look at my LinkedIn profiles, both of them on there now. So oh, we've
1: got we've got a guy with
2: two I job know, titles I know. here.
0: <laughs> every Rashad every year, uh, Muhammad Rashad picks up another basically, one. Basically, <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> that's how it is here. <laughs> that's <laughs> how manipulative they are. Soon you'll be like you know
2: one of those people on LinkedIn are like fifteen titles uh, <laughs> with like hashtag as well. To be honest, I think I'm already there because I add some of the investments I do as well, investor, and these all of these different companies. Ooh, fancy! <laughs> yeah. Right, so let's crack
1: on with the first news story, guys. Who are you, Kazir? Oh yes, I forgot to introduce dare. myself. So, I am Khizar Muhammad and I am the community lead at Islamic Finance Guru. I literally just joined a week and a half ago. So, mm-hmm. here I am. This show was my idea. I'm taking full credit for it.
0: Definitely. So Unless it goes badly. Well, actually, in, in case it goes badly, it's yours as well.
1: <laughs> but Ibrahim approved it. Like and it. comment below. Ibrahim approved it. So if it goes badly and you didn't enjoy this, he approved it. <laughs> right, let's crack on with the first news story, guys. So we know that on Wednesday, it was announced that the world's first international digital Islamic bank is launching in the UK. It's going to be UK based. And it's called Nomo. I think that's how it's pronounced, Nomo. I'm wondering, like, we're seeing real trends with like the digital banking sector now, right? Everyone wants to do stuff on the app. No one wants to go in and talk to people. But I'm just wondering, like, Ibrahim, why do you think this is like so significant? Do you think this challenger bank really has a a chance?
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's because there's a bunch of them already in the market. says yeah. Riz, Kestrel, Insha, My Ahmed, Money Mint, Algebra is another one. Mm-hmm. Nomo is another one that's come onto the market, and I'm sure I'm missing a couple of others. So there's like there's a ton of them. I guess the interesting thing here is that it's actually provided by one of the incumbents, BLME, uh, the bank of, I don't know what it's called, something in the Middle East. Bank the of bank Lund- London and London Middle East. East. Yeah. And that's an actual regulated bank. So the interesting thing here is that in, when you call it banks and digital banks, what's actually happening is you've got like a pretty front end, a pretty app. And in the background, they don't really have proper banking licenses. It's just a glorified prepaid credit card. But here, here BLME actually have a license and they've got connections with the Kuwait and you know they've got Kuwaiti Bank over there as well. So this is the first proper digital bank that we've seen in the UK. But, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are, Mohammed, about how the traction's going to be and that sort of thing. But my concern is that they're very much targeting it as their customers, who are Kuwaitis or you know Middle Eastern people, who are coming over here to just act as a bit of a conduit for that money as opposed to, you know, for you, right, a Londoner, yeah. uh, to use.
2: I mean, I think it's interesting just seeing all these. So when there was this wave of neobanks, you know, the Monzo's and Revolutes, basically every traditional bank was like, we need to get our digital services running. And one of my friends works at a consultancy where they actually do some of these things. And basically all the banks went to these consultancies, tried to build a neobank for themselves. I think RBS launched one recently in the UK, I can't remember their name. But like when you're looking at the value of what these provide, what he was saying is it's just a money burner because banks don't actually make their money through current accounts or through these kind of digital services. That's just kind of the lead to get the customer in. Where they actually make their money is through giving out mortgages, giving out loans, giving out business transactions, and taking in those deposits and then deploying them. So it'll be interesting to see how these neobanks and you know when, when BLME actually launches theirs, how they'll actually make money out of it. But I guess at the end of the day, you know that's better customer service, it's always a good thing.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because I mean, if BLME is already a, is already a bank, so all that's happened is that they've just released an app.
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes <laughs> I think about it <laughs> as well. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what makes a neo bank? I mean, Barclays has a pretty good app. They have a card as well. Is Barclays a neo bank? Like, what differentiates a neo bank from a normal bank?
1: A key thing for me here is I think the sell is aimed at. I feel like these kind of banks are really aimed at younger people. And this is just my own kind of hunch that I feel like this, even the name Nomo, it sounds kind of like, you know, hip, young, like it doesn't feel like something I would pitch to my mom and dad. It feels like definitely someone my age would probably want something like that. And I do feel like it's meant to maybe be like an Islamic uh, Monzo, perhaps. And I think like, you know, one of the things that makes Monzo so like, I don't know, I wouldn't say revolutionary, but very different is the analytical features in it where you can monitor your spending and such. So I'm not sure if these kind of features will be present in this app as well.
2: Yeah, I think essentially it's better UX, better customer service, digital first, um, which traditional banks have traditionally failed at. So I think that's kind of the big differentiator here.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, on to our next story. What did you find interesting in the past two weeks, Ibrahim? So there was a really interesting story that came out that apparently the amazon rainforest is giving out more carbon dioxide than it is taking in for the first time in history which is pretty mind-blowing if you think about it because that was supposed to be you know the lungs of the earth right because that was the biggest rainforest and it was sucking in carbon dioxide and that's what trees do apparently (laughs) they suck in carbon dioxide and (laughs) chuck out oxygen but now because of the deforestation and because of the fires that people set to clear the forest, that's actually ending up giving off more carbon dioxide. And I suspect there's, you know, the cows and the cattle as well. That gives off a lot of carbon dioxide as well. So I think we're, and I saw a a few people post on LinkedIn, this news article, people that you wouldn't typically expect to post or who don't post often. And I agree with them. I think this is now an emergency. And I think I guess there's probably two things I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on. We should definitely touch on the ways that you can invest into this climate change crisis, because I think there's, frankly speaking, money to be made in trying to solve this problem. But also I think that we should talk about, I don't know, what's our response as individuals to this as well? I don't know what your thoughts are. Like, you know,
1: I think on the second question, I think our response as individuals to this is that, I feel like as Muslims, we are khulafa. On the earth. We are meant to be custodians of the earth yeah. and stewards. We're meant to be looking after it. So, as Muslims, I think our inherent duty lies in looking after the earth. Yeah. So, if we know that alternatives are available, why would we want to support something that we know is in essence killing our planet? I think it's not even just a Muslim thing, even just as a pure human, why would you want to destroy where you live? this earth is your home, you know? Your oxygen doesn't just come from the tree next door, it comes from around the planet, right? So if the lungs of the earth, as you said, Ibrahim, are suffering, would you not want to, in any way, shape, or form, at least push and promote the technologies and support them
2: that will solve this crisis? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's super sad because I think Muslims are probably one of the worst perpetrators when it comes to polluting the environment. We don't really care too much about you know, plastic use, about reducing our meat consumption. We're d- probably one of the worst when it comes to these things. I think there needs to be more awareness. And like even thinking about Islamic finance, people like to stick to the hard rules. Oh, there's no interest in this, so it's fine. But they don't look at everything else that comes along with it. I mean, Islamic finance is the all-encompassing concept where things like caring for the environment is part of that making sure there's not exploiting workers is, is part of that and people kind of just glance over those things as long as th- you know they don't have interest it's fine which is not I think kind of a, com- a compare it to the halal meat industry where people think about you know as long as the slaughter is halal and the blood is out and they said bismillah it's fine but they don't think about how that animal was raised how the farmer taking care of that animal and all those things are glanced over and it's really important to take that all-encompassing view about it.
1: Yeah, definitely. So Ibrahim, what do you think are potential ways that Muslims can kind of like support this green revolution?
0: There's a big problem,
2: right? And we need to try
0: and solve it. And either we can solve it with our own hands or we can solve it with our money or we can solve it with our tongues. I don't think thinking about it will will be that helpful. I mean, we might get rewarded for it, but that probably won't help as much. And I think if you are an entrepreneur and if you are working in this sector, I think it's a fantastic way of turning your mind to it and thinking about what is it that I can do that can have a game-changing impact on this problem. And even if you're not working in this sector, like even if you're working in finance, actually that has, a, I think, quite a strong connection that enables a lot of ha- things to happen. So like, for example, with us, IFT.VC, we might invest in climate change startups, things like Oxwash, which is bringing the technology that you use in space rockets and bringing that bear to cleaning uh, clothes that's an interesting example and there's a few others in our portfolio as well so that's one thing you can do the other thing i think is if you're like a you know not an entrepreneur what can you do i think what you can do is invest in technologies and companies both private and public because not only is this a fantastic investment because you know whenever there's a problem a big problem and this is you know civilizational as a problem like if we don't solve this All of those like Armageddon films that we see is what's going to actually happen. So there's a massive problem, and that will mean that people will literally spend billions if not trillions of pounds trying to solve this. If you're in that game, if you're in that industry, you will benefit from it. So we've actually brought out, I mean you probably saw, right, the clean energy fund replicator flavor. And that was a thinking behind it, which is like, you know, Muslims need to get access to this industry. This is the next big wave from an industry move perspective. And Muslims haven't historically had access to it. So what we did was we took the top funds and we stripped out all the haram funds from all the haram stocks from that. And then these top climate change funds now Muslims can actually invest in them through the fund replicator because it gives you that clean list to invest in. So I'd definitely tell people to check that out. And also more broadly, you know, have that as a theme that you keep in mind when it comes to your investing.
2: Yeah, I was quite pleased when I heard that you guys, you know, the second flavor was on clean stocks. I mean, I don't work with that side of the business. They're like the public stock markets, which I don't understand. I'm on the private investments. But uh, when I heard that you guys were releasing a clean stock fund as the second flavor, I was like, that is really impressive. I think that definitely shows direction you know the world is moving into
1: and plus I think even if you're not even just looking at this from a sustainability or I want to help the planet perspective this is the next big industry because like you said Ibrahim everyone is now trying to solve these problems because they're becoming very real so even if you just want to be rich and you have that kind of thing that I just want to make my money and go why wouldn't you be investing in this industry
0: absolutely like if you look at the returns on our portfolio is 30.9% annualized return over the last three years, which is like, I'd be quite happy with that in the private sector, right? And that's where you expect like big returns. Yeah. So, you know, we were quite surprised when we did the backtesting on this portfolio. So yeah, there's a lot of focus, a lot of money, a lot of policy changes that are happening. It just makes complete sense mm-hmm. to be exposed to this area. Yeah, definitely. Right,
1: onto our next story, Mohammed. What have you found interesting this
2: well, in the world of big tech and big technology, there's a lot of money sloshing around. And uh, we recently heard of the big, big fundraise by Revolut. And they are now valued at $33 billion. So Revolut, we we're talking about you know neobanks. Revolut started in 2015, not that long ago. And now they are worth $33 billion. They just raised $800 million from uh, SoftBank and Tiger Global or Tiger Capital. And you'll be hearing these names a lot when it comes to these very big fundraisers because these guys have been investing everywhere. Uh, so Revolut, if you guys don't know, they're a neobank started in London to make easy currency exchanges. And now they've expanded to almost all over the world and have about 15 million customers. Uh, what's interesting though is that uh, they don't even have a banking license yet, uh, which they're just applying for. So a company that's actually worth now more than NatWest, NatWest is a publicly listed bank here in the UK. Revolut is worth more than that. They don't even have a banking license. So it kind of shows, you know, where the value is is moving in the world. I mean, fintechs generally these days have been doing very, very well. Two of the most valued unicorns, and the unicorn is a private company that's worth a few billion dollars, is Klarna and Revolut. Really? So fintechs, for every $5 invested in venture capital, $1 goes to fintech. It's super interesting actually, and you know, this field, the UK, is probably one of the best places for financial technology. Stripe, I mean, they were Irish, but you know, <laughs> nearby enough. We'll claim um, them. We'll <laughs> claim them, <That> it's fine. <laughs> I mean, not start a new war. <laughs> you know, Klarna, European, um, Revolut, yeah, based from the UK. So Fintech is doing fantastically well. Of course, taking a step back from that, Deliveroo, which listed here in the UK, did very, very badly, actually. Really? They I'm did. Yeah, that is but quite it surprising. they bounced back? They have bounced back, yes. But I think it was kind of a disappointment in kind of the UK and Europe's approach to venture capital and risk. I think the US is still the big market where everybody goes, and people here in the UK are always quite skeptical. Which I TransferWise did well, though. Yeah, so why is this? That's actually the point I was going to make. So I think when it comes to fintech... People here in the UK really love fintech and financial technology. It may be because so many bankers here and they understand that, but when it comes to other technology companies, I think they just are a lot more skeptical and they don't want to back them. But I don't like that because I feel financial financial technology and finance in general is kind of a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And so, I mean, if you think of what is being produced for the world, it's just kind of shifting value around. It's not really producing anything new. Of course, there is efficiency and everything else. But I think we do need more emphasis now on some of the other companies that are building value for our world and maybe, you know, shifting some of the money from fintech to other sectors.
1: Yeah, true. How do you feel about it in particular, Ibrahim? Do you think there is a trend where, like Mohammed just mentioned that Revolut's overtaken NatWest and we were talking about challenger banks just a moment ago. Do you think there's a possibility that the age old banks are just going to get left in the dust?
0: In short, I think the answer is no to that. And I should be really interested to hear your thoughts after this as well, because you're the person who's probably not involved as much in the fintech and investing world. Yeah. So I'd like to hear your kind of cold thoughts on this as someone who's like looking at it from the outside. My thoughts on this are probably twofold. Like on the, you know, are the incumbents completely dead in the water? The answer to that is probably no. And the reason is because like if you look at how banking works, you have Current accounts or savings accounts, these are deep pools of patient capital that just sit there. And it doesn't cost the banks anything or very little to get hold of that money. And then the banks, they will lend it out or they will use that money to do stuff with it. And that means that if they're getting the money for zero pounds or 0%, they can lend it out at a quite cheap rate, which enables things like mortgages and credit cards and car finance and all the home finance and all this sort of thing. Now, the challenger banks, they don't necessarily have access to this cheap capital because they haven't had the chance to build up huge reserves. Like Revolut, you know, it may have, what you said, 15 million customers, but how many of them are actually really sticky, proper customers using Revolut as a bank and keeping money within Revolut? Very, very, very few. And actually, even if they did, Revolut doesn't even have a banking license with which to then lend out that money in the first place. Compare that to, you know, someone like HSBC, which is one of the world's largest banks, 40 million customers and 99% of them i would estimate would have significant amount of money in the actual bank account so hsbc can do a lot more with it now I think, where does that leave challenger banks then? I think challenger banks, what they're good at is a customer acquisition piece, right? Getting the customers on board, and then they don't really know what to do with them. They can't really monetize it very effectively. And the other banks have the other problem, HSBC, which is they're now quite bad at getting customers on board, but once they're there, they milk them, right? For the rest of their life. So the logical thing, and I know this has been said a lot, the logical thing is for these banks, the incumbents to take over the neo banks and uh, consolidate, or to have some kind of joint venture where they plug in their deep pools of capital and issue that money through um, like a Revolut or a, or a digital bank. And then the Revoluts of the world are happy because they can keep a cut and the back end is happy as well because they can continue using their deep pools of capital. So that's probably like the direction of travel with regards to this, you know, Revolut fundraise at 33 billion, you said. Yeah. I just think that's a bit mad. And if you look at the people who are funding it, Tiger, Tiger Capital and yeah. SoftBank, you know they're widely known as the two most aggressive VC okay. funds or VC um, houses that put really aggressive valuations onto companies. They've got a hell of a lot of money to deploy. Like SoftBank has over 100 billion and Tiger has about 50 billion. Yeah. So for these guys, they want to deploy this. And they, I mean for Tiger in particular, they don't particularly care if it's slightly above value because they see it as coming in cheaper than the public market eventually when Revolut lists. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the valuations are a bit bonkers. But, you yeah, if someone's paying the money for it, then... Uh...
2: Yeah, I mean, you say that, but if you combine all the unicorns of the world, so Revoluce 33 billion and, you know, whoever else, Klarna and everybody else, they still don't match Apple's market cap of 2 point something trillion. So Apple is worth more than all the unicorns of the world combined. So maybe the 30 billion isn't that that off, to be honest. I mean, there's excess capital in, in the world today. And yes, you actually talk about you know, traditional banks. I was reading an article where it says banks have too much money and don't want to actually accept deposits anymore because they don't know where to deploy it. So I think maybe where the real revolution will come from is through business model change in the banking industry, and in the finance industry, to see you know, new ways of deploying capital to make sure it gets to the right people.
0: Yeah, maybe uh, what's he called, Mayoshi San and the Tiger guys? Maybe they're onto it. Maybe we're, we've we've uh, <laughs> we've underestimated we, them. We could be.
1: <laughs> true, true. My thoughts, particularly on these uh, new digital challenger banks. It's funny because I actually just got a Monzo account. like literally yesterday my card arrived and the reason that i got that because traditionally i've been with lloyds like my first bank account was with lloyds and it was back when they had islamic bank accounts now they don't do those anymore so i'm quite lucky that i had nabbed two of those but the reason that i got a monzo account was simply for the analytics because of the features of the app that you can have like these little pots you can have the analytical features to see where your spending is going and you can budget efficiently That was the only reason I got it. Otherwise, like I said, I do pretty much agree with you in the sense that the old traditional banks do have all this money, but they suck at customer service. They suck at getting customers to come to them and open more accounts with them and stuff. Well, once they're there, people are pretty loyal. Whereas these new challenger banks, they haven't got that historic legacy of like lasting that long. So people are a bit hesitant to put their whole paycheck in mm. into these accounts. And if they don't even have a banking license as well, people are gonna be like, well, what happens if suddenly I lose everything? Like, you know, is am I really better off with them or should I just have them as a kind of like secondary account or something?
2: I I think many people use them as you use them and as I use them, which is my main money is in like Barclays, but then my spending money is on the Monzo. So, you know, every tap is through Monzo, but I transfer like a certain amount every month. So until maybe these banks can build out a reputation where people are willing to put their big chunks of money in there, I think there's still a long way to go. True, true. Okay. I'll move on to our next story.
1: And it was quite exciting for me personally because I am a huge space geek. Since I've been a kid, I've always wanted, I just love looking up at the stars. I love knowing about constellations and all of that kind of stuff and the unknown. And my favorite movies were always to do with aliens and like going out into space and like all of that kind of stuff. So when you find out that two of the richest men in the world are flying out to the edges of what is considered The atmosphere and pretty much space it is pretty much space that was pretty exciting for me i was like oh my god i was watching the flight i was like this is so
0: cool you watched the flight yeah yeah yeah, i
1: watched the flight i thought it was amazing and i watched reruns of it i kept on and like it was everywhere on the news and i was just like even though like the video quality is poor and it's not like the movies where you're seeing like these massive nebulas and colorful constellations it was literally just richard branson's face and stuff but it's quite exciting to think that two billionaires like Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, um, more or less. And Elon Musk. And Elon Musk, like all of these people involved in the space race. And I was just looking at what this means for the whole aerospace sector. We've seen obviously the stocks of many aerospace companies have shot up. (laughs) Mm. And we've seen the likes of NASA and like government space agencies give their contracts to these private companies, as opposed to develop technology in-house. Because mm. let's face it, like Elon Musk has done a much better job, mm. much more cheaply than NASA would have in you know space travel. Mm. So for example, I was reading an article which said something along the lines of, NASA was paying Roscosmos, which is the Russian space agency, I believe, about 90 million or something to use their Soyuz capsule. Right. And Elon Musk did it for 50 that's a pretty big saving right so that's why nasa's just given its contracts to spacex and i think richard branson and jeff bezos's uh blue origins it's called blue, blue origins right jeff Bezos, yeah. yeah yeah so they were applying for the same contract i just see this as the beginning of a completely new sector which is space tourism and like we already know that virgin galactic for example they're set to launch commercial space flights next year already 600 tickets sold at a price of roughly $250,000 each.
0: What I don't understand is, you know, if I take a flight to America, yeah, I am going somewhere to do something. If I'm going to space, I'm going to nothing. I'm literally going to nothing. The absence of, you know, anything, right?
2: I guess you can think of it like a, like a boat cruise. You go on a cruise just to like go around in a circle, isn't it? It's kind of the experience of the actual journey.
0: Sure. Okay. Then it's just pure tourism, right? Yeah. Space tourism. Two hundred and fifty thousand pounds for the privilege of going into space when you could just watch a film, right? No. <laughs> I if I had that money, same, I
2: wouldn't even think about it. I would just, immediately, I'd be lining up to like, uh, really why? Like, let go to space. It's yeah, like So you look what? up the stars. I'm there now. <laughs> I am the star,
0: exactly. I mean,, look, I don't like going on holidays anyway, but oh even that's if right. that's <laughs> why <laughs> even if I did, there's like a high risk situation where you could die, and what's like the what's the benefit? You get to see the sun closer, you get to see yeah. the moon, you get to see yeah. the earth. but Richard Branson's done it now. He sent us pictures. <laughs> you know, we can, like we can do that already.,
2: oh, I can't understand your logic no no, me, no I completely I disagree. Understand.
1: I think <laughs> let's be honest, right. this market is aimed at. Very wealthy people who've just got money to throw. At
0: exactly. Like, look, so there's three billionaires. Like this is yeah. the other big story, right? There's these three billionaires who are now in this like massive, you know, kind of uh, alpha male struggle <laughs> with each other about who can spend the most money to get into space. It's like instead of jet skis or private airplanes. They now do space rockets into yeah. space. That's a thing. I
2: mean, it's an interesting point to bring up because I think there was this letter uh, that went it was a bit of a famous letter from NASA. So some person asked a NASA scientist, you know, why are we spending billions on space travel when there are starving people in the world? Which was a very good point, but he had a very good response, which was the technology that we're developing for space travel has had enormous benefit here on earth as well and that the same technology is being used in completely other areas and because we're exploring the boundaries of what we can achieve in science that has other implications and so i mean i think this is the kind of stuff that we should be investing in today's world where we basically have everything food is in surplus poverty is close to zero you know hunger is is very rare these days besides conflict areas um we should be spending a lot more on those kind of areas like space travel and others
1: Yeah, I think it's a civilizational thing as well. Like every civilization has like its unique features that have pushed it that make it unique. You know, if we think about it this way that, you know, if Yom Al Qiyamah doesn't come in the next 100 years, you know, or in the next century, uh, millennia. Same thing. Well, (laughs) yeah, I meant to say millennia. So if in the next millennia, humans are still alive, they're gonna look back at this moment and be like, 2021 was the year where things changed for the human race, where now we were no longer confined Mm -hmm. to Earth. And you know, what's next? Go to Mars? explore Venus, maybe next time we'll have rocket ships that are so efficient that you can, you know, visit Pluto
2: and come back. I I don't know. I mean, when's Ryanair launching their space space travel?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, you can book a plane to space without the suit or without a seatbelt. You have to pay for that by yourself.
0: And then you'll have like English tourists who are like, you know, topless and like drunk (laughs) in space. Trying to get a tan. Yeah, and all all of the aliens on the moon are like, you know, we don't want these tourists anymore. This is like a red list. Red list (laughs) zone.
1: Yeah, we just get the international community of aliens like coming down and marching down on
0: us. And then when you look at the moon, there's this like this black dot, which is like the English bit area. <laughs> oh, there's all this like, rubbish. Do you think there's investment opportunities here, Ibrahim? Yeah, like, look, obviously I was quite critical and I remain critical about, I think, the intentions of yeah. these people. Yeah, I yeah. think for them, it is quite a frivolous thing yeah. necessarily, right? Like they're billionaires and yeah. they're just kind of doing this very much as a hobbyist space tourism. But I agree. I think a lot of technology will come out of this. And I agree that this is a civilizational thing that... I do think, you know, trying to get to Mars and other places like that is an interesting and useful endeavor overall because we're screwing up this planet, so it kind of makes sense. <laughs> like, I was um,
1: going to say, climate yeah. change, let's, let's sc- zoom over to Mars. <laughs> let's go screw up another planet. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. So, I do agree with it. And I'm mean, like, you know, the company we mentioned, Oxwash, yeah. it is actually using that technology that they use to, what was it, they like, used to ozone to clean, yeah, to clean the clothes. space rockets. Yeah, without um, high
2: temperatures, basically.
0: <laughs> exactly. So that's a classic example of that technology applying, Um, and then you know with TV and satellite and telecommunications, all of that has been very much enabled by the ability of getting things into space. So I'm not a complete critic, but I do question the intentions.
2: Adding to that whole same point, and maybe not to add too much skepticism to to the discussion, but like I also in question intentions but maybe for different reasons because if you think of like space travel as kind of a human endeavor uh, and as like a human race doing this in, in the past it was by people like nasa for example was a government entity government funded government essentially controlled by the people or at least in, in by concept whereas now it's all individuals and you know the, the public doesn't really have any say in it it's whatever elon musk wants to do whatever richard branson wants to do and there's a lot of concentrated power uh, in many ways. And yes, they have been more innovative than public institutions and done it in cheaper ways. But at the same time, do we want to be giving so much power to just these three individuals? I think it was interesting to see also, like, kind of the PR that they were doing. I don't know if you saw some of the pictures, but, you know, there was Elon Musk without shoes standing awkwardly in, like, Richard Branson's house or something. And sometimes I think these guys are billionaires. I'm sure they have, like, 10 PR companies doing these things, just some random picture. Maybe it's, okay. it's meant to seem as they are, like, casual, everyday people. Whereas, in fact, you know, they are billionaires which control a lot of the world. So there's a bit of skepticism there about, you know, seeing which kinds of companies are are doing this.
1: I completely agree with that. I also think like from an Islamic perspective, purely looking at what are our priorities as people we rightly should be skeptical of them naturally they're probably agnostic or atheists for them this life is what it is and their purpose for doing this is that look they've got all this money i mean richard branson has his own island he's probably done it all elon musk has done it all they've all you know they've dated supermodels they've bought all the fancy cars they've got the mansions like what else is there to do they're bored in essence. So now they need to find something to cure that boredom. And what better endeavor than to make themselves legendary in the books of civilizations by going to space. And I see this as just another thing to cure their boredom. Whereas obviously with an Islamic lens, we look at this as that we Muslims have a duty of stewardship over the earth. And we have certain priorities that while space travel, like you said, Ibrahim, isn't necessary. It's nice to have. It's not necessarily like the go to, like, you know, this is our number one priority of the planet. I don't believe that myself, despite loving the news itself. But I also think that the perspective that we would look at things from is that this is something that is just civilizational. And yeah, it will bring benefits. The technology will be applied in many other places. But I do agree with the criticism that there are many other things that. Sh- If I had that kind of money, that should be prioritized, I feel, from an ethical standpoint. Now, moving on to our last story for today, Ibrahim.
0: Yeah, so this year, there's been a very reduced hajj, right? Just for the locals. Mm -hmm. And that has meant that the big way that the Saudi economy used to make money through hajj for millennia now, really, was stopped, right? They've lost that. And I think it proposes interesting dynamics for the region as a whole. I'm sure that you know Hajj will be back next year and and what have you. But I think it this is like exacerbating a trend that we're seeing in this in this area in the Middle East because you've got oil heading out right at some point or another in the next 30 to 50 years, oil will head out, oil end, and you know there won't be as much of a price for it. And by that time. These economies need to have shifted to something else. So the UAE has set itself up as a bit of a tourist hub, as a business hub, and now the Saudis are genuinely competing with that, right? Mm-hmm. And the, you know, I was talking to someone um, in the UAE recently, and he was saying that there is a genuine competition now between the two people because they want to, you know, they're trying to like the Saudis are trying to catch up with their like openness to business and openness to you know foreigners coming there and they want to attract more people into Saudi versus the UAE Now you combine that with the Israel situation in the background and you've got tensions between Qatar and you know even the Kuwaitis, they w- voted against recognizing Israel recently It's a really interesting time, I feel, for the Middle East and I think what it's going to look like in even 5 or 10 years time is going to be very different I mean, I don't know what the answer to that is but I think right now it's a situation of flux where new lines are being drawn in terms of power and dynamics.
1: I definitely agree with that. I mean, simply just looking at kind of we're seeing these kind of sides emerging almost in the geopolitical arena of the Middle East or even I just say the Muslim world when we're looking at, for example, the inclusion of Turkey, Pakistan, Malaysia, how they've kind of veered to one side and then you've got more stronger alliances being built between, for example, the Saudi and the UAE. And kind of I feel like In politics being played behind the shadows, we know that there's certain strings being pulled, which has kind of shifted perceptions. This has affected trademarks, uh, trade and between the countries as well. Which country? I think it was Saudi that stopped allowing Turkish goods into the country or it might have been a different Middle Eastern country. But it definitely was a thing. And that was a big hit on the Turkish economy, which was struggling at the time anyway, because of the Trump administration's kind of sanctions on Erdogan.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting what's happening in Saudi Arabia. Personally, I think it's a good thing. I mean, there are bad sides to it, but, you know, the modernization is good. The openness to business is good. The larger freedoms are good. I mean, Saudi Arabia recently passed a law where they want the big consultancies, if they do any work in Saudi Arabia, that the headquarters should be in Riyadh or in Saudi Arabia itself rather than Dubai where they're normally based. Um, Some of those laws I don't agree with, but generally, Saudi is becoming a lot more open and a lot easier to do business with. So generally, I think it's moving in the right direction.
0: But the challenge I have with the Saudis, and I used to live in Saudi, I think you might have done I as well, right? I did yours, yeah. Is that they are trying to use rules to force the innovation or the infrastructure mm-hmm. or like the culture mm-hmm. that they need to actually progress, you know, and what they need to actually progress. Like if you look at a Saudi organization, typically there's like Saudis at the top, the work is being done by everyone else mm-hmm. who's at the bottom, ideally like, you know, Filipino or someone. Or maybe like a rung above you have got the Pakistanis and then after that you've got the Saudis who do no work and then there's like a few Brits in there as well they have to be white Mm -hmm. and you know they're at the top as like a figurehead if that's the situation then there is no hope for Saudi Arabia it's like it's just no chance that they're going to be able to catch up Mm -hmm. you know the UAE I think the way they did it differently was they were confident enough to become the minority they're very educated. Yeah. They are still, you know, I think they take positions of authority at the top. But my sense is that the UAE, they actually work hard yeah. and they actually
2: do stuff. But that's actually the good thing because I think what you described was the Saudi Arabia of the past. And that is changed over this past five years. Foreigners have been left in droves, Saudis are starting to enter the workforce in a compelling manner, not out of a forced manner, in a manner that they actually want to work. And of course, because the country is developing and growing and people are getting used to a modern lifestyle that requires money, um, they say, well, if I want to live this lifestyle, I need to start working. So before it was unheard of to see a Saudi waiter, a Saudi taxi driver, whereas now it's commonplace. Saudis are driving taxis and Ubers. They are waiting at restaurants. They're becoming the managers and they're actually starting to work. And I think that next generation of people who were educated at the universities, at universities abroad, are coming back now and saying, you know, I want yeah. to change my country and for the better. So I think it is changing in drastic ways.
0: I hope so. I guess I'm looking back with my memories okay. that are just like seared in my mind <laughs> of my dad used to work in a hospital. And, you know, you had a guard standing at the door. He was quite fat, had a really advanced gun that he probably didn't know how to use. <laughs> and he was guarding this corridor. And at the other end, there was another guard who just sat watching him. And then there's another guard over there in the other part of the corridor and he was just sat watching him. And all of them, there wasn't any need for three or four of them to be there. The only reason why they were there was because the Saudi government needs to feed its population with money to keep them happy, to keep consent. And that still remains the case. And if that remains the case, then I think there will always be some kind of inadequacy to uh, progress. Because when you end that payment, what happens then? Because either you've got a population that will say, okay, fine, we need to work hard and do stuff, but hang on a minute, why should we do that when the 90% of the value is going to the king? It doesn't make sense, and then they revolt. So to avoid that, you still have this kind of you know, feeding of the population, but if you have that, then you don't have hard work because you're just giving someone money. Um, so I think, I like the thought of Saudi Arabia progressing, but I'm still very skeptical if it will actually succeed.
1: Well, it will be a very interesting space to keep an eye on in the next decade or so. JazakAllah khairan to both of you for taking the time out to share these important insights. And JazakAllah khairan to our viewers for keeping up with us and listening to our badly told jokes. Tune in next fortnight when we will discuss the latest going on in the world of business and finance. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
0: If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamualaikum.